You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With a few words, history was made and a legal, political, and historical mystery was solved. Or if not solved, more clues have been given. In 1787, James Madison presented a series of amendments to the just-ratified Constitution, which created the Congress that he was part of. Among these was a bill that said, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to bear arms shall not be infringed. Such rights were provided in British law going back to the English Civil War. State constitutions, different ways, provided these rights as well to bear arms. While many of the amendments, those involving due process, property, free speech, and commerce, were debated by the Supreme Court over and over again throughout history in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, little has been said about this Second Amendment. And Americans, where they could afford it, owned guns throughout American history in fairly good numbers compared to most countries. Several court decisions reference guns, but always indirectly. In 1938, the U.S. Supreme Court said that Jack Miller, a bootlegger who had fled and was never present for his Supreme Court case, had no right to his shotgun. Because, they said, it was not a common military weapon. It was not a weapon that would be required of militia service. The kinds of weapons that the court at that time believed the Second Amendment protected. In the 1930s, gangsters were the fear of lawmakers, and a shotgun was a common weapon of gangsters. Gun laws were passed around the country throughout the 20th century, and the circuit courts, those federal courts below the Supreme Court, generally upheld them. The Supreme Court was silent on the issue. While silence implies some agreement, the mystery around the words remained. Did the Second Amendment only protect militia rights? The right to be part of a militia and have that never taken away by the federal government? Or did it protect individual rights to own weapons and guns to be specific? Dick Heller, a security guard from Washington, D.C., wished to bring his gun home after his work was done. This was illegal, according to Washington, D.C.'s handgun ban. He sued D.C., as Heller felt his neighborhood was not safe, and to protect himself, he needed to bring a gun home. Dick Cheney, speaking not as vice president, but as the president of the Senate, he said, which as a sidebar is an interesting constitutional situation to examine on its own. Dick Cheney sided with Heller, as did Republican candidate John McCain. The Bush administration, interestingly enough, opposed Heller, and solicitor Paul Clement argued forcefully against repealing the D.C. ban. 
The Bush administration was afraid of the effects it would have of handgun bans throughout the nation. The NRA, the nation's most prominent defender of gun rights, actually hedged it first in this case, fearing that a decision could interrupt the sort of peace they've had for the past couple of years and perhaps make gun laws even stronger. But eventually they did side with Heller. In the end, a 5-4 Supreme Court held that the District of Columbia handgun ban was unconstitutional, that Dick Heller could bring his gun home, that the Second Amendment does not merely protect militia rights, and that individuals can use guns for self-defense. They did rule that D.C.'s licensing requirement was constitutional. Heller did not contest this. And they further said that reasonable regulations could be imposed on the Second Amendment right. Not all rights were absolute. The decision was hailed by everyone from John McCain to Bob Barr to Barack Obama. Justices Thomas, Scalia, Roberts, Alito, and Kennedy supported the court's majority decision upholding uh, Dick Heller's right to bring his gun home and holding the D.C. handgun ban unconstitutional. Justice Stevens wrote a dissent supported by Ginsburg, Breyer, and Souter that argued that the Second Amendment applied only to state militias. Breyer wrote an additional dissent which emphasized in a greater way that handguns were particularly deadly weapons and that colonial early American laws did actually regulate guns. Kennedy, the swing vote on the court, sided fairly quickly with the court majority. Anton Scalia wrote the opinion of the court, which cut through this oft-debated issue like a razor. The running debate, you may remember, with the Second Amendment has been whether the right to bear arms in this amendment is an individual right possessed by you and I as people or a collective right, a right that we exercise as a group of people when used collectively, or perhaps even, as the dissent in this case tried to argue, as a state, as a group of people operating. The confusion is caused by the phrase, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state. This is the sentence, or the phrase, that starts the Second Amendment. In Scalia's decision, he labels this as a prefatory clause. To him, it's the same as saying, because. So, you could say, because a well-regulated militia is necessary for the security of a free state, the right of the people to bear arms shall not be infringed, because... And he argues, citing books of legal interpretation going back to the 19th century, that a prefatory clause cannot limit the rest of the sentence, the rest of the legal amendment, which is known as the operative clause, the part of the legal amendment that actually does something, in this case demands that the right of the people to bear arms shall not be infringed. It's an interesting linguistic argument. In other words, you have two parts of a sentence. One part does something. The other part just merely adds flavor, says something, makes a statement, but doesn't order anything done, does not command any action. 
he obviously, in his logic, the operative cause, the part of the phrase that demands something, must be more important than the prefatory clause. And he backs this up with those guides of interpretation. Often, he says, rights can go beyond the reasons in the prefatory clause. You can have more rights than those that would be narrowly defined by the reasons for that right. It's an interesting legal argument. One could cite many reasons that we have free speech. We have free speech so that we can participate in a democracy and not be influenced by the government. We have free speech because we also have freedom of religion. Some speech involves religion. We have uh, free speech because ideas are important in American society. But that speech right is not limited to those reasons. It doesn't only protect my speech when I'm talking about the party in power. It doesn't only protect my speech when I'm talking about religion. It doesn't only protect my speech when I'm talking about a novel idea which is going to turn the business world upside down and improve the American economy. My speech is protected all the time. This is not an argument or example that Scalia makes, but it's an argument I'm using to try to better understand his point about the priority of the operative clause. He then goes on to define some words. Militia, Scalia says, is defined as the entire male citizenry of the United States. The entire male citizenry of the United States. That is the definition that I agree with. Uh, In the last podcast we had on the Second Amendment, I talked about this. This is the definition that most of the founding fathers, framers, whatever you want to call them, both pro-constitution and anti-constitution, insisted on. The militia was the entire male citizenry of the United States. Well-regulated, well-regulated, means well-trained. Free state means free country, not free individual state. We're not talking about New York or New Jersey here. We're talking about a free state, a free America. Bear, as in bear arms, that means to carry and to use. Keep means to keep at home. Right of the people means right of individuals. Now this is a very important point. Scalia makes this point that everywhere else in the document, when referred to the people, we're talking about rights of you and me, individuals, not just rights of people when we act together collectively. Arms means all kinds of weapons, not just military uses. And Scalia finds old references of arms to, in legal documents, referring to bow and arrows, for instance, something that would have no military value in colonial times. Arms are all weapons, by his definition, and by the majority court definition. Having established that the Second Amendment holds an individual right, Scalia uses historical references to establish a right to self-defense. That is what is germane to the Heller case. He shows how the Declaration of Rights of Pennsylvania argued a right to defense of themselves, a right to bear arms in order to provide a defense of themselves and the state. Themselves and the state. So not just for military use, but also to protect you. James Wilson argued a natural right of self-defense of one's person or home. 
He also cites a similar language in the Vermont Constitution. Scalia goes to historical English law, the law of the Declaration of Rights of 1689, in which William and Mary assured the Protestants they were uh, William was a Catholic monarch, and he assured the Protestants that they would have arms for their defense. Their arms would not be taken away. Suitable to their conditions and allowed by law. He said that this right to bear arms had nothing at all to do with militia service and has been widely seen as a predecessor to the Second Amendment. After all, Scalia says, the way the Second Amendment is written, it assumes the right's already there. See, it says, shall not be infringed. It doesn't say the people shall be given the right, the people shall have the right. It's the right that already exists shall not be infringed. Scalia tells the tale of George III disarming rebels in areas of the colonies where there was trouble, and newspaper articles in New York saying that, arguing that people had natural rights to arm themselves, something evoked by patriots in newspaper articles. Scalia pretty quickly disposes with something that you'll often hear, which is the, the musket argument of the Second Amendment, and that's that, well, if the Second Amendment protects the right to keep and bear arms, it protects the right to keep and bear arms that existed or in 1789, not those that exist now, like machine guns. Scalia calls these assertions frivolous, bordering on frivolous, that we should only apply the Second Amendment to muskets. Technology, he says, clearly does not change rights. First Amendment rights didn't change the right associated with radio and TV. Might change how you could regulate the right, but not the right itself. Finally, Scalia upheld the Miller decision of 1938 and its permitting of ordinary military equipment. As we had discussed, Jack Miller was indicted for having a shotgun not paying a license fee that was fairly high, probably more than the weapon itself. The court considered a shotgun not something that ordinary uh, would be ordinarily required when called for malicious service. Able-bodied men, he said, were expected to appear bearing arms supplied by themselves of the kind used at the time. And the court that made the Miller decision did not feel that a shotgun was an appropriate weapon. And, and of course, that was reinforced by a law, a National Firearms Act law, passed by Congress. Scalia is not against militias. He just doesn't see the Second Amendment as limited to militia use. People should be allowed to bring whatever arms they can to militia service. And in revolutionary times, the weapons used for self-defense and militia service, that would be a musket, perhaps a small pistol, would be identical. Here Scalia solves perhaps another mystery, and that is the question, does the Second Amendment allow you to have any weapon you want? By upholding Miller, he recognizes, he recognizes the answer is no. There is a limitation to the right. As Scalia says, as with all rights, the Second Amendment is not an unrestricted right. Scalia upholds the Miller decision which argues for weapons in common use at the time. He agrees with a common 18th century phrase of permitting bans against dangerous and unusual weapons. 
a phrase that appears in uh, many laws at the time. Dangerous and unusual weapons. He also asserts that it's clear uh, the reason for a Second Amendment, the original reason, was a defense against tyranny. He acknowledges that if M16s were banned, some might argue that the Second Amendment has no value. This is the example he gives. But Scalia has an argument for that. He also acknowledges that no amount of small arms could be useful against modern-day bombers and tanks. The basic truth that a militia could not today provide the function that it could in 1789. But as Scalia says, modern developments cannot change a right. In a sense... The real purpose of the Second Amendment, which is a defense against tyranny, that the federal government could all of a sudden become run by a tyrant, that the president and the Congress and everyone else could uh, be in the hands of a tyrant or a foreign power, and it would be up to the militia, which colonial people understood to be all the able-bodied men uh, of society, armed, would then stand up to this tyrant. It doesn't have that purpose anymore. Scalia argues, who cares? The fact that the reason for the right may not exist in true form doesn't take away the right. That's Scalia's argument. The District of Columbia ban of all handguns in the home was therefore unconstitutional. But one could imagine a range of weapons that are not according to this decision. Assault bans would probably gain a little from Heller, in my opinion. But handgun bans, as Scalia has declared handguns being a common, useful, and lawful weapon agreed on by most people to be useful for self-defense could not be banned. That's going to put the uh, gun laws of several cities in serious question now at circuit court levels. In his dissent, Justice Stevens argued that the Second Amendment was for state militias only, or most importantly. He did acknowledge that there is an individual right but that the scope of the right is what is most important here. And the scope of this Second Amendment right, the focus of it, was on military uses. He gives a kind of wild example. He says, does it give, does the Second Amendment give you a right to use guns to rob a bank? No. Does it give gun the right for you to carry guns for military uses? Definitely yes. Those are the extremes. Those are easy to answer, Stevens uh, argues. But other areas are sort of gray. He finds a lack of legislative history that the framers wished to prevent legislatures from limiting firearms. Only that the framers did not want the militia disbanded. In terms of the language, Stevens identifies the well-regulated militia clause, that prefatory clause, and the bare arms clause just the same way that Scalia does. But then he says, how can it be that this court, in the majority opinion, reads the end first. How can they read, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, but ignores the first part, ignores the logical connection that the Second Amendment has a military purpose. He argues that bearing arms implies in and of itself a military purpose in, in every case. Cites various court decisions and historical references employing, implying that the defense of the militia was the primary reason for the Second Amendment. He disagrees with Scalia's d- definition of what arms are. 
Stevens refers to the Latin arma, which clearly means in Latin war equipment. He cannot see, as Scalia does, weapons that are not of a military nature being defined as arms and therefore being included in the Second Amendment. Stephen Breyer, Justice Stephen Breyer, agreed with Stevens' dissent, but also wrote one of his own. And in his dissent, he cited the life-threatening nature of handgun violence. And he said that the district was addressing this problem. And this problem, in a matter of law, weighed greater than what he felt was not the primary point, but the secondary factor of the Second Amendment, personal self-defense. Breyer is most convincing in citing colonial laws in the three big cities of colonial America. That would have been Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. These are the areas of the country, the time that the Second Amendment was written, where people lived together the closest. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the most notorious podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. And each of them had laws restricting firearms in some way. Philadelphia prevented the firing of a gun in the city and find those who defied it. New York, Philadelphia, and Boston regulated gunpowder's usage in some ways. Some of these cities had laws that required the gun to be stored in a separate room from the gunpowder, or to require that the gun not be loaded. In either case, especially when you think about a colonial weapon, these laws were creating conditions that were not ideal for self-defense. Breyer cites the example of the Patriot Sam Adams. He advocated a law protecting arms and a right to own guns. But he also knew that in his own city, Bostonians could not keep loading guns in the home. Did we really think that Sam Adams wanted a Second Amendment for the reason of self-defense? But Breyer's view is the minority one and not the law of the land. Now, in my own view... As I illustrated in the previous podcast on this subject, on the Second Amendment, the Second Amendment, as I see it, gives an individual right to own guns for a collective purpose. We have the right to keep guns at home, not in a militia storeroom, not at a federal armory, uh, for the purpose keeping a militia alive, keeping the possibility that it could be assembled when needed. I indicated that the presence, I indicated that the presence of an armed America was seen as a good thing by both the supporters and opponents of the Constitution, as important for freedom for the free state as used in the wording of the amendment. The primary reason for the Second Amendment is protection from tyranny. On that, 
I am in line with the court's majority opinion, as written by Scalia. I acknowledge that if you really follow the philosophy behind the Second Amendment, to its extreme extent, we should have access to all kinds of weapons. Everything that the Federal Army has. Tanks, guns, etc. Now, there might be some limit in that. There might be some requirement for training. There might be... But in some way, you should have access... Or this, Not you personally, but the militia should have access to everything the federal government has. It's a difficult concept because a militia, as intended by the colonists, or intended by the Revolutionary Era founders, just simply didn't exist and doesn't exist today. The national militia, defined by the framers, by Scalia, and humbly by myself, is all of the U.S. armed. Of course, that you should have everything the federal government has and essentially be able to take on the federal government as a militia force is, uh, of course, then subject to other considerations. Good public policy, stare decisis, precedent. Those would all limit the absolute intent of the framers. And so we don't have, in reality, a militia, and we don't have access to everything the federal government has. Scalia recognized this problem when he said that there was little that handguns could do against modern-day bombers. And so Scalia is only partly an originalist, as it is often said. He recognizes in this decision reasonable regulations for weapons. No one has quite adopted the same philosophy or same reading that I have of the Second Amendment of an individual-slash-collective right. I'm closer to the dissent because I see the purpose of the Second Amendment for militia use, but I disagree strongly that, strongly that the language was for state militias only. Considerable evidence points to militia being this group of all armed men in the country, but not under the control of the federal government a group that never appeared in history, but the founders hoped always could. Scalia provides insight that he'd only touched on, that is, this concept of a natural right, and that people in the 18th century as British citizens would have felt a natural right to bear arms given to them by 17th century kings. And that is why he said it is written as a right given, as not to be infringed. The dissent in the Hiller case particularly the Stevens dissent, in my opinion, used the wrong argument and wasted their dissent. Breyer's second dissent is closer to the issue for me. Even if the Second Amendment gives the right of the individual use of weapons in the home, self-defense is just a secondary, maybe even a tertiary uh, part of the right. And that in the face of people dying, cities can as they did in the era of Sam Adams, uh, make laws in order to protect people, and this right in and of itself cannot overwhelm that ability of cities. Scalia is most convincing in his opinion of the Second Amendment as a protector of individual rights and defining the language in the amendment best. Kennedy, from the questioning and from the initial hearing of the case, seemed focused on the example of a settler seeking protection from Indians or, or government tyranny. Self-defense from Indians in frontier use of weapons, in my mind, is part of the reason for many of the references to self-defense in colonial documents, and particularly that uh, 
Pennsylvania law that for the protection of themselves, or Wilson's statement about protection of their home. But defense on a frontier from hostile Indians, to me, is very different from city use, where you are defending from other people within the city establishment, even if they are criminals. I think that's more a reference that if a settler is uh, on the frontier, say, and the British government, or a or a tyrant in America took away their weapons. They'd be doing harm not only because they violated their rights, but they'd also be leaving them defenseless. I mean, it's a close argument in many ways because one could see that, that in those frontier times, the Indians were the, the group that was most going to uh, unsettle civilization. And that would appear to be a direct link to criminals of today. But I do think that the situation changes a bit in a city versus a rural setting. And that's probably a lot of the practical difference in gun in the in opinion of gun laws today, whether you're in a city or whether you're in a rural area. I think the evidence that the Second Amendment protects the right to self-defense is limited. And really, the court sort of came on one side of a 50-50 question. This is a 5-4 decision. I would say normally a five four decisions that they would be very likely to be overturned. However, I do not think Heller will be. I think most of the action now will be in circuit courts, and they will define statements like dangerous and unusual weapons or reasonable regulations that come out of this decision. Assault weapon bans may stay. Handgun bans most certainly will not. Even with a change or two in the court, I'm not sure that this case will be revisited. Had Scalia gone scorched earth and struck down any gun laws or touched licensing and training requirements, things that, in my opinion, would have been required in colonial days for a militia, the attack laws that said that those who were mentally unfit or those who had committed certain crimes could not be deprived of the right to use guns, I think this would be back very soon in the Supreme Court. But given this decision, I think it will be handled in circuit court level for some time. This is one of the major issues of our time. Gun politics were a big thing in 80s and 90s America, in national politics and some state politics. It is certainly a historic moment that the issue is clarified, at least, in modern times. With History Beating Up Politics, I'm Bruce Carlson. I want to thank you for listening. The website is myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. There um, you can comment on the podcast. I am always looking for suggestions for new podcasts or any questions you might have. I'm going to do a questions podcast pretty soon, so it might be a great time to ask a question. I'll look into it if I can. We also have available History Picks the President 2008, the audiobook. It's available up on the site. Eight ninety-five, and it's uh, approximately two hours. It looks at some of the factors that voters will use in this upcoming election and how they stack up with history. Things like the role of the vice presidential pick, role of a home state, what happens when one party owns the Congress and the other party the presidency, uh, what's the role of the incumbent in the election when the incumbent's not running, all these kind of things, and we'll take a serious look at it. My history can beat up your politics.com. Thanks very much. As a longtime foreign correspondent, 
I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.